Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. Um, in the bulletin, I'm going to read it to you. It is God's nature to be without a nature, to think of his goodness or wisdom or power is to hide the essence of him, to obscure it with thoughts about him. Even one single thought or consideration will cover it up. Such is the divine order of things. And when God finds this order in a soul, he begets his son and the soul bursts into light with all its energy. And from that energy, that light, there leaps a flame. That is love. And the soul, with all its energy, has penetrated the divine order. And that's Meister Eckhart. Meister, they gave him that title when he went to France. <clears throat> Master. Not often given in the Western world, but he truly was. And the Reformation started with him because he began to teach. He was, in, he was a German, and uh, he taught the nuns and the priests and the lay people in Germany, Thuringen, I think he lived. And he, uh, he taught them in German, not Latin. He was the first one. And they call him the Lao Tzu of the West. Now, if we had lived <clears throat> around the Eastern Mediterranean, in the early century or centuries of the Christian era, we might have noticed, if we were discerning at all, scratched here and there, you know, on the sides of walls and houses, maybe even on the ground, a crude outline of a fish. And we see it a lot today on automobiles. Hmm? So they're still present, but they are also still present uh, scratched in the walls in the catacombs in Rome. And I would imagine in catacombs that are in other places around what is now Italy. And if at that time we had been Christians, 
these would have been symbols for us. They would have been the symbols of the good news, the gospel, huh? the good news. The heads of the fish were supposed to be pointing to a place where they were going to have a meeting, underground meeting, hmm? uh, because uh, the, uh, these meetings of the good news were forbidden. Uh, to be known as a Christian, you know, was to face the lions or maybe to be made into a human torch or something. So the meetings uh, were secret. Uh, now, the symbol of the fish, which is very ancient and it is pre-Christian, uh, Krishna, who is the god in India, you know, the Bhagavad Gita was written about Krishna and this Arjuna, whom he teaches. They're in this chariot out there facing this tremendous battle. Krishna. Krishna of India, uh, it is said, the legend goes about him, that he was spawned by a fish and thereby rose out of the water. And uh, in ancient Chaldea, they had the symbol of the fish, and they called it Nun. Uh, and the fish symbol, of course, is connected with the worship in ancient Greece of Venus. So it was very sacred. And within the uh, Christian symbol of the fish are the initials of the Greek words Iusus uh, Christos Theos Theos Sotos, which simply means uh, Jesus Christ. Son of God, Savior. And this man said to those who followed him, I will make you fishers of men. And these early Christians were called fishes. Now it could very well have been that in those days, the man in the street who heard these disciples uh, proclaiming the good news, come and hear the good news, hmm? they may have been impressed not only by what they heard, you know, what these disciples were talking about, but he may have also been uh, impressed by what he saw, you know. He saw these people, these men and women. They were ordinary in every way, except that they seemed to have found uh, some secret, as if they had found a, the secret of living. They were simple people, you know, but they had this kind of a tranquility, and they had this cheerfulness. Here are, were these people who seemed to be making uh, a success of the greatest undertaking of all, the greatest undertaking that faces you, faces all people, living life. 
and that they had such a secret and they could live cheerfully. It was frightening to many. And of course, it was one of the reasons for the persecutions. These very early Christians <coughs> evidenced, you know, two qualities. The first was their mutual affection. You know, they, they, they cared about each other. But their, reg their regard was not only for each other, but was for everyone they met. And they said, men and women are equal in the sight of God. And they not only said it, they lived it as if they believed it. And whatever they did, you know, their fellowship had within it this sense of equality. We are equal. You are no better than I am. I am no better than you are. We are equal. And to live that way. A lot of people believe it, but they don't live it. Just before Jesus was crucified, he said to his disciples, My peace I give unto you. My joy I give unto you. My joy I leave with you. And this was a quality. And that joy seemed to have pervaded these early Christians. And outsiders found it baffling. After all, these Christians were all scattered around, and they were certainly not very many of them. They were not numerous. It was not a big thing at all. And they were neither wealthy nor were they powerful. If anything, they faced more problems than anybody else. You know, they had more adversity than anybody else. And yet, in the midst of all of their troubles and all their woes, you know, they seem to have a kind of an inner peace and this inner joy. And so one maybe could say of them that life had ceased to be a problem to be solved, you know, but had become a glory perceived. then it is no longer to be solved once you have seen it. Huh? No. Now, what do you suppose brought about this joy in their lives? What gives you joy in your life? Here are these people, you know, wandering around trying to tell the good, you know, tell other people of the good news that they, that they themselves found such peace in and such joy in. Well, as history has written it, they found this joy because there were three burdens that were lifted from their shoulders. The first burden that was lifted was fear. Hmm? In their perception of whatever it is that they saw when they knew Jesus, 
or as the disciples, you know, knowing disciples, the disciples' disciples, you know, that had this joy. No? In their perception, you know, the fear, even the fear of facing lions, you know, when they entered that arena, it was gone. They could walk into it, you know. The fear of the unknown was gone. They knew whereabouts they were at, in other words. And the second burden that they were released from was guilt. How does one live without guilt? <laughs> now, we all of us make distinctions of some sort. Huh? This is better and that's worse. We have these distinctions, you know. Out of our basic pleasure-pain syndrome, we make distinctions. What will give me pleasure? That's better. What will give me pain? That's worse. And we could, you know, like St. Paul, what I should do, I don't do. And what I shouldn't do, that's what I do, you know. What I should do, that's better. But I don't do it. Hmm? So this is worse. And out of this comes the guilt, because I didn't do as I should, or I thought I should. So out of all of this mishmashing around within our world, myself, you know, there arises this concept of what life might be if I always did what I was supposed to do, as I should. Huh? Yeah? How this life would be, how it should be, how it could be, how it should be lived. And having this concept now, it's a concept only, remember. Having this concept, we also have uh, the concept of the opposite our sense of failure, that we don't live in such a manner. Guilt. Now these disciples didn't have this anymore. Something had happened to them. And the third release was from the prison of the eagle. They had been people who were as self-centered as any, maybe even a little more, who knows. <clears throat> but this ego-centeredness, that this is for me, you know, everything that goes on is for me. What else? You know, this is my world, me. All that was gone with him. And we have Paul's statement, you know, I live yet not I, the Christ liveth in me. Because that circle of ego self had been broken. And it leaves a love that flows freely without any demands from the ego. Now, it isn't difficult to see how the release from guilt and fear and this ego 
could and would give us uh, a birth into a different way of living. That's just a different way of living. Huh? Let us not confuse it with something else. Mm -hmm. But we could certainly well ask, how did these early Christians get free of these burdens? Certainly we would like to also, wouldn't we? Hmm? <coughs> well, let us say there is a power. There is a power. You use it all the time. It's sitting in that chair holding your body together, uh, holding your thoughts together. There is a power, and it is a power of transformation. And one of the names of this power, because there are three aspects to this power, one of it, one of these aspects, we call love. And from this power that we call love, we know affection that we call love. Upon perceiving other than the self-centeredness, you know, perceiving something outside of our prison, here comes the love. It's not a, a you know, a righteousness uh, or well, I, of course I love you, and of course I love God, and of course this, and this, and we use this word love. <laughs> That's a kind of a cover-up. It's a kind of a sham, shall we say. Now, within the last 50 years, changing times, uh, man has discovered that within, in, within the atom, there is an energy. And it is the energy of the sun itself. And for this energy in the atom to be released, it has to be bombarded. And when the shell is broken, out pours that tremendous energy, the power of the atom, the power of the sun, the power of transformation hmm? in the little atom. Now, locked within every human existence, every human being, in you and in me, there is this wealth of love, the power of the sun itself. It's the power of the will. Hmm? It's the power that passes all understanding. And it can be felt, and it can be perceived, and it can be known. But there's a little trick. You have to make an effort to know it. And that effort is called meditation. Meditation, uh, loosely spoken, of, uh, we could regard it as a kind of a bombardment huh, of that hidden place where there is this seed, this secret of ourselves. 
to so concentrate within oneself that we can finally perceive and say with St. Simon, I saw him in my house amidst all these everyday things. He appeared unexpectedly. It leaped over me without anything between like light in the glass. And I became that which I saw before and beheld from afar. I do not know how to relate this miracle to you. I am a man by nature and God by the grace of God. We have, and everybody can plainly see this, we have had a physical birth. Yeah. And through this birth, we have become what is called objectively self-conscious. We are conscious of objects, things, huh? objects. We are conscious of ourselves as an object. You look at yourself, oh yeah, this is a thing here. We call it body. But we are objectively self-conscious. And there is another birth which takes place within the individual. In Bethlehem, you know, in the old um, esoteric, the house of bread, Bethlehem, house of bread, hmm? Bethlehem. There is a birth which takes place within the individual. It is a subjective rather than objective. Hmm? And we call this the birth of the Christ. That's using the Christian terminology, which today being Christmas, we do. This body must be in existence for the real body, the body, to come forth. How, how can I make this come forth? You know, uh, where Jesus said, you know, unless ye be born again of water and of spirit, ye can in no wise enter the kingdom. To which this good little rabbi, Nicodemus, said, How? How am I going to be born again? I am an old man. I am 70. Am I to creep back into my mother's womb? Many years later, hundreds of years later, Meister Eckhart comes up with an answer. How does God beget his son in the soul? As a creature might with ideas? Not at all. 
he begets him in the soul just as he does in eternity and not otherwise. This process of the conceiving and the birthing, this bringing forth, you know, comes about through our, shall we call it, bombardment, huh? correct meditation. No thought, no thought will bring about the actual birth. We cannot think the real. We can only think about how it appears to us in its disguise of the senses. The representation given us by eyes and ears and nose and mouth and hands about these appearances we can think. But the Christ conscious state is not thought into existence. It is not a product of the thinking mind nor is it a product of an emotional state. It is not like anything that we know through the senses. Thusly, to sit correctly, we eliminate our concepts, our notions, our ideas, our feelings, our thinkings, and what now? What now? There are those who say, but if I shut off my ideas and my thoughts, I won't be. But if I, and, and if you don't be, are you going to disappear? The body is still sitting here. Is it going to die? Hardly. What now? You know, so we seek. You know, simply seeking. Quietly relax, at rest within, and the body at rest, so that the mind can rest into it, huh? and shutting off the senses. For, as this Meister Eckhart said, to think of his goodness, or wisdom, or power, is to hide the essence. It is to obscure what actually is. For God does not have a nature as we know our own nature. With the senses closed off and the feelings and the thoughts ignored, then we can know. Jesus said, and we can know it too, I give you what hand has never touched, what eyes have never seen, what ear has never heard. But what can occur in the soul without thought? This the ego cannot know, what can occur without thought. Because the ego deals only in thought and idea and emotion. So what God is doing in my soul is a secret 
until I surrender that ego, which is to self say, you know, I give myself. You know, it is my will to know thy will. So quietly seeking, but puzzled as to how this birth should come about, and finally realizing we cannot manufacture it, we cannot produce it, and we cannot create it. But we know full well that something is afoot. Finally, in the sitting, in this meditation, a new interest grabs us, and there is an excitement that comes upon us, and still quietly seeking, that innocence appears. That child is perceived. And in the wondrousness of it, we are amazed. Hmm? Somebody once wrote, I don't know who, but I rather like it. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not yet ready for thought. And the darkness shall be light, and the stillness shall be dancing. Just sitting, seeking, without any sham. <clears throat> in our Western culture here, in this day and in this age, at this time of year, we celebrate the birth of this child of wonder wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger, or as some say, in the cave. And the manger was in the cave. In an obscure cave, that should mean something to us individually. In an obscure cave, in the darkness, this pristine child is born whom we call Christ. This is your life. This is your opportunity. Go into that cave and go through that obscure cave. And upon emerging, the darkness shall be light and the stillness dancing. And more. It's nice to know it's comforting, you know. We don't think much about it, but it's really nice 
that to feel that we've conquered the darkness with electric light. Yeah? And we have overcome isolation with a telephone. But what about the isolation of one consciousness? With all of our knowing of things and objects, with all of our conquering, we conquer our fears now and then only to have it come up over here, and we conquer the guilt over here, and then it's over here, and, you know, we are conquering. Does not, in the midst of that, an old, old, forlorn loneliness linger? You know, we see the heavens, they're vast above us. And the earth sustains us, our roots, huh? And we would perish if a vitality greater than our own thoughts about it, you know, did not make the seeds to sprout and grow. We are dependent upon nature. We are dependent upon each other. We are also dependent upon a light within. Hmm? Whether we admit to it or not, we live a dark, deep mystery. You know, there was a program on last night, William Bulkley, and he was interviewing uh, a man in, in England who was a theolo who is a theologian. And Mr. Buckley brought up a point that I found very interesting. This man, who seemed to be rather knowledgeable about what was going on within the individual, uh, brought up a point of how important it was in the life of the individual. And Mr. Buckley said, well, can you envision a dinner party and everybody's sitting around and talking, and all of a sudden you brought up this question about God. How embarrassed everybody would be for you. The most important thing of your life, the thing that you should be doing the most about, and it is an embarrassment to talk about it. Hmm? That's how we live. Yeah, he was very good in this thing last night. You know, with all of our skills, and we have many talents, if we do not search for this child within us, you know, somebody once said, without it we are a tired humanity, wandering through the ages without hope. Embarrassed about our own divinity. Hmm? Without any joy in it. So one should begin to live, you know, to have some time for seeking. As if the grace were just about to occur, to break through and be now. 
all you know, if you did seek, that's what it would be. So what is there to be embarrassed about? So now we celebrate Christmas, huh? It's a time of symbol and of the myth of humanity. And we look within. Never, you know, we don't look 2,000 years back down the road. We look within. Because it makes no difference whether these symbols originated in the Eastern nations, we'll say in Egypt, or in the ancient pre-Christian times, which most of them did. But in all of that time, many streams have merged and many practices and rituals have met and mingled. So that one tradition, in a manner of speaking, is built upon the shoulders of another. None of them stand alone. Christianity and Buddhism point to the same thing, the everlasting light. Christianity stands on the shoulders of Judaism. Judaism stands on the shoulders of Egypt and of Babylonia and of Chaldea. The various sects, like 395 sects of Christianity, extant today, they stand on the shoulders of Martin Luther. Martin Luther stands on the shoulders of Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism stands on the shoulders of Gnosticism. It's our history. And it is good to realize this, that they are all mingled, for it does help to deepen our understanding, and it does break down barriers where somebody comes along and says, well, I'm a so-and-so, well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Baptist, and boom, 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 boom. Hmm? Because, you know, basically, religion is spoken of as a stream, and it's a stream that flows through all of us, more or less. Hmm? And in the, in the overall stream of religion, you know, here it branches off a little, and there it branches off a little. You know, little streams, and we call them the various sects. The closer the stream to the stream, you know, the source, the more valid. And we know, and it is so written in our in the Christian Bible, that Jesus spoke differently to his disciples than he did to the multitude. You know, they were closer to the source. They had had some training. But all people everywhere, everywhere, those of the past, those that will be, those that live now, we are one people, essentially. So Christmas is also an invitation to a quiet realization that one life, one light, one child, one source, 
dwells in the hearts of each and every one of us. Like the little pumpkin story. The pumpkin story, I'm going to tell the pumpkin story. There was a little monk, and uh, he had a temple. And behind the temple, he had a garden. And in this garden, there were pumpkins. And the pumpkins fought with each other. One had a better place than the other one and got more sun. The other, somebody, another pumpkin had a better place and it got more water. And some were larger and some were smaller. And they all fought with one another. And one day, the monk came out and told him that this had to come to an end. He couldn't stand their squabbling any longer. So he told them, he showed them how to sit for meditation. And they learned it. And they finally stopped squabbling. And one day he came out, and they had been sitting very well. And he told them all to feel on the top of their heads. And sure enough, they discovered they were all connected by one vine. One light. Hmm? In us all. We stumble, I think, through many of the myths that are extant today, and there are many. Joseph Campbell wrote a book, you know, that it was entitled The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Now, a thousand myths about this Christ child. Because all these myths are pointing, they're pointing. All these thousand heroes. Pointing, pointing. There is something afoot in here. And we have our symbols, such as the Christmas tree, which is an evergreen tree, a symbol of everlasting life. There is everlasting life and light. And uh, this is known throughout the world. In Japan, Uh, The uh, evergreen tree represents strength and honor, integrity and courage, and a devotion to the truth. Not to my belief, but a devotion to the truth. The pine tree, which is an evergreen tree, is very often portrayed keeping a very lonely vigil on some rocky crag. Hmm? The aloneness on a rock. And the Jewish people now celebrate Hanukkah, which is the Feast of Lights. It is a dedication of oneself. It is a feast of dedication. Weihnachten, which is the German term for Christmas, also means a night of dedication. So this should be a time for reflection and for questioning. Where am I going? with all my notions, my bundles of ideas about the myths. Where am I going, whoever I am? Hmm? And we have that strange creature in the red suit and the white whiskers, huh? known as Santa Claus. 
and he is in some strange way associated with the Christ mystery. For it is Santa Claus who arranges the gifts so that the children do not know where the gifts come from. He comes Christmas Eve, you know, he places the gifts around and he's long gone. And the children, the gifts are there. Where they came from, they don't know. Hmm? But he points. Huh? The light is the giver of all gifts. Every day, every day we live, we have the bounty and the benefits. And eternal life is always the anonymous giver. There's one giver, and we are the ones to whom the gift is given, including the capability to know that hidden giver. So we look at the situation directly. Hmm? You don't look at the words or the ideas about you look at the situation directly. You know, we do come to realize one thing, that the thing that keeps us in bondage is the way that we think. Hmm? And we sit there and we question, what is the difference between my nature and God's nature? Well, we can all say of ourselves, well, I am kind now and then. I'm gentle now and then or I am capable of deep thought now and then. None of this can God say. He can't read, he can't write, and he has no education. Hmm. None of our advantages has God had. For it is God's nature to be without a nature. To be without a nature is to be empty of self. To be empty of self is to be filled with the essence of God. To be filled with this essence is to come to the child. For when God finds this empty in the soul, he begets his son, the pristine child, the purity, the innocence of no nature. For the child is born not by blood, nor by the will of man or woman, but of the will of God, out of the fullness of all grace and truth. And the people that have experienced this, and there are many, not many in comparison with how many people are living, but there, there are others, there are people who have experienced this, you know. And you will find, if you ever meet one and talk to them, that they make no claim for themselves. They know it was a gift. Gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh brought by the three kings. Mm. 
conditioned as we are, that is, we think along certain lines, we are conditioned. Hmm? It takes a particular correction of the mind to come upon it. You know, when we correct eyes, you know, we put on glasses. It's a putting on. Correction of the mind is a taking off. You know, it's a taking off and a taking off and a taking off until there is nothing left but that no nature. It is empty and it is truth. I think some of us, once in a while I think this, <clears throat> some of us are becoming aware of our situation in this life. And we of ourselves put ourselves under a kind of an obligation. It's like a commitment, as it were, to work toward this moment of coming face to face with that which is called Christ the innocent babe. There was a time, oh, say about a thousand years before Christ walked the earth, <clears throat> that there were a group of people, oh, they were, they were quite numerous, and they were called, they were a religious group, and they were called the innocent. And uh, they were annihilated, these innocents. And it is this, it was that situation that we now read in the Bible as the King Herod killing off all these innocent children. It was actually the innocence of a thousand years before, the innocence. Somebody knew something and they had to be annihilated. Hmm? This universe is as we find it. And we are as we discover ourselves to be. Because, you know, we do plot along as we're growing up, and then all of a sudden we seem to reach an age of maturity, and it may come at 19 and it may come at 95, when all of a sudden we turn around Oh, this is how I am. Hmm? How we discover ourselves to be. And yet, you and I, however we are, we epitomize the nature of this universe. We contain all of the past. You know, for Korzybski said, we are time binders, and we are. We are the seed of the future. We are the seed of that which will be. What we have always been lies within us. We carry a bright hope within, you know, like a lighted candle. Each of us carries the necessary elements for the birth. There's nothing lacking. Now. Any now. While all things were in quiet silence, said Solomon, and night was in the midst of her swift course. <clears throat> 
thine almighty word, O Lord. Leap down out of the royal throne to me. Alleluia. And God begat his son in the soul. Again and again, the child is born, that pristine child in you, in me. One child, one father, one mother. Same child in you, in me. Same father, same mother. Born in a silent, dark night. And so we sing, you know, we can sing silent night. It's a holy night. All is calm. It has to be, you know. All is bright. Huh? Holy infant. So wondrous. So we can, sitting here, celebrate that which is about to occur in a silent, dark night. And I think maybe if someone has a good enough voice to lead us, we could sing it. Silent night, holy night, huh? All cleared? <laughs> okay. Uh -huh. power that passeth all understanding, hold us and keep us in the love of the Christed consciousness while we are seemingly separate one from another. And I thank you for coming, and I wish you a Merry Christmas. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.